You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I finished my conversation in part two of this two-part series with Kirk and Emily Duplassus, a husband and wife team that have built a career through entrepreneurship and real estate investing. We pick up exactly where we left off part one last week. And so we will begin today's discussion by talking about how Emily made the decision to leave her full-time job to go all in on real estate. So if you haven't listened to part one of this episode yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to last week's episode, which is part one. Now let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. So was there a moment before you quit your full-time job that you were just like an aha moment? Did you know this is the time, this is now, or did you just kind of make a leap and figure it out on the way down? Made a leap, I would say. I don't think I ever had... It was a very hard decision. So I don't think there was ever really... Do you remember an aha moment? Mm -hmm. I don't think there was. I think it was a... I'm going to do this. I'm scared out of my mind. Yeah, it was definitely an eyes closed. We're going to jump. Yeah, but like we had, it was eyes closed. We're going to jump, but we had had the necessary things in place. We had the rental income to replace my income. You know, we had Kirk at that point had been established with his new business. Like we made a major life move a couple of years before I left my teaching job so that he could take the risk. So we moved from Virginia to Pennsylvania. I got a teaching job here so that he could go and jump and try to start his option. Oh, you know, I get, he didn't really start it, but I guess really take it full time yeah. and see where it could go. And so he had a couple of years to do that, to get ourselves to a point that we had kids and then I could do it. So by no means was it like this, oh, we had a kid and now we're going to you know, stop. It was a, like a four or five year thought out, hey, this is what we want our life to look like plan. So I don't think there was ever an aha moment. It was very scary, but we had had a plan in place of like, you get to take your leap. I'm going to be the supporter. If anything goes wrong, we're good. We have insurance. We have my job. Everything's good. Okay. You're on the ground. We got it going now. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was planned in that sense. So we've talked about the different asset classes that you have now briefly. Let's dive into a little bit more. What does your portfolio look like today? How many units do you have? How many deals have you done? What are the different strategies you're implementing? You mentioned a couple. Let's dive into that a little bit more. You count the units. I always forget how many we have. And we're literally so We're in the process of actually unloading a bunch. Unloading <laughs> At the moment, the last like I would say six to eight months, we've kind of been in a sell mode, which is working out, I think, at this point. But right now, the mix that we have is we still have a couple single families. We have them in a couple different states now. We've done some partnerships in Tennessee, and we have sold some of our property in Virginia now. And we have student rentals. We have two student rentals right now. Those are, one's a duplex, one is a regular house, but larger house. A couple duplexes that we have that are around here, so not single families. Mm -hmm. And then we have two vacation rentals, which are relatively new over the last three years Mm -hmm. that we've added. And those are larger houses, five to seven bedrooms in those houses, and specifically for seasonal vacation rentals. And we truly enjoy those. Those are very, very fun properties. Yeah, I think I'm trying to count because we've been like unloading and but also buying. I think we're around 14 or 15 doors at the moment. Like Kirk mentioned, we've just sold a handful off. And we have a flip right now too. Yes, I I don't think I counted that one. So yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've done a little bit of everything. 
And it's been fun to kind of go the full circle. Actually, for the longest time we got into it and I was like, we're going to hold these for 30 years and never sell them. But it's been fun to get them and watch them grow. I mean, some of the ones that we started with, those condos and townhouses, I mean, they almost doubled in value from the time that we bought them. And we didn't mean to do that. It just happened the way the market was. And then we were able to sell them off for a huge profit. So it's been a learning experience. So there's an interesting dynamic that you guys mentioned in there. You're selling off some of your portfolio, but you're also still buying and you're doing a flip. Usually people would start selling off some of their portfolio because potentially where we are in the market cycle, I could definitely argue that and agree with that. But that would tell me that I shouldn't be doing a flip or I shouldn't be buying more property. So talk to us a bit about how you're comfortable doing those acquisitions and flip while also trying to hedge your risk and sell some of your portfolio. Or maybe you're just selling them for different reasons. Maybe it's because you hate those properties. Talk to us a bit about that. To me, I think it's more of a a transitioning of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So like as we've grown as real estate investors, we've learned that we like to do some things and we like some properties. And now we like other properties more. And we, you know, maybe don't have the appetite for doing the properties that we have in our portfolio or that we started with. And so, you know, part of our process has been that we don't want to be pigeonholed to saying like, oh, we bought this property and we're going to hold it forever. And so some of the properties that we've been selling off are properties that don't fit what we would classify as, you know, new deals for us, mm-hmm. right? So properties we've been buying are, you know, slightly newer, a little bit bigger, more stable rental market, you know, a little bit nicer properties we're spending a little bit more money on, and we're selling off some of the properties that are a little bit smaller, a little older. bit less pricey, older, maybe not as good area, you know, that we had gotten into before, and so we're trying to transition. In fact, we've done a number of 1031 exchanges just to do that process, right? So we're not, you know, selling in just taking the money and running. We're literally just keeping the money in there to snowball as much as possible. So we've 1031 exchanged properties that have gone up in value in that kind of older, different area. And we started to buy a little bit better, higher quality properties. The flip property is just interesting because we you know kind like, of stumbled onto it. Yeah. All the flips that we've done, we've done yeah. three flip properties now. This is the third flip property that we've done. And to me it's it's an opportunity that if it comes up, I can't walk away from it. If I see ice cream for a dollar, like I'm going to buy it in He's the grocery store, right? for sure, <laughs> right? Because it's just a good deal. And yeah. so, if you you may not need ice cream at the time, but you're going to buy it. And that's how these deals came up. So, like the flip property was a great deal. The lady went through a short sale. We were able to negotiate really, really good, you know, deal with the bank and the financing around it. And so, we don't want a flip property right now necessarily, but we could see how it could easily. Be a good property for us to uh, to transition, and so. And the so. reality is, because we got it for such a great deal, we were able to pay cash, so that we don't have a lot of like pressure. We're really going slow with it. We're actually like training our new assistant. Yeah, this is really we cool. have, yeah, like we've hired a new like real estate assistant to help us out with a lot of stuff, and so like we're really like trying to train her on how to manage it. Project, and this yeah. is her pet project, so like we're not in a rush. We're taking our time, and so it's nice to be to a point where we're able to do that. And we don't have that, oh my gosh, we have a mortgage payment and taxes and this and this and this. We're able to kind of take our time with it. Yeah. That's a very different situation than someone who's entering their first flip right now and who's trying with to learn it. Financing. Yeah. With right. hard money. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a very different... And that, I'm glad that, that I asked that because that's a very distinguishing thing that I think it's important for the listeners to hear because they might hear, oh, well, Kirk and Emily are doing flips. I, I should run out and do some flips too. And well, it's like, wait a second, let's really dive into that and learn about the actual situation before we just go out and you know take action on that. And yeah. it goes back to knowing your market. Like Most markets are up right now. So I would be very hesitant to jump into something that would be that kind of investment. And I would say like even still, like so the one 
other vacation rental that we bought last year. You know, we have been looking in this area for potentially a vacation rental for four, four or five years. years. I think. And when I say looking, it's not just like we've been looking online. We've gone down, we've looked at property after property after property, and literally nothing made sense. And we yeah. almost just wrote it off. We and were then, ready to write it off yeah. for like, we're like, oh, maybe, okay, maybe in 10 years we'll you know, revisit it because just the numbers never work. Right. So. And so we found a deal where the guy was super motivated. The price was dropping like a rock. We offered a really low price and he took it. And so like that to me is why we're still buying property. We're not trying to buy property at the top. We're trying to buy everything that we can that's a decent property, a little bit below value. Not this like crazy, crazy, but just like a little bit below value. And I think it was just an amazing deal. So we jumped on it. So So when you talk about those Airbnb properties, those vacation rentals, some people love them because the returns are often amazing. And then some people hate them because they are often labor intensive. So have you guys found that it's a super labor-intensive property of yours? Or do you use a property manager? Or are the returns just worth it? You're willing to put in the work? or And do you guys use those properties as vacations? Or is it strictly just an investment property? We have property management for both of them. So for us, I think what we love about them is the fact that they are hands-off because we've self-managed everything for the amount of years that we've done this. So the fact that we have these great properties that we don't have to manage is actually really, really great. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that we do... Um, we have two of them. We have one that's actually only about two hours from our house. And we use that one a lot, actually, quite a bit. And so that's awesome to be able to have a place that you can run out when you're not going to be there. But yet, it's a place where we can go in the summer. It's a ski resort and also on a lake. So like we can be there in the winter. We can be there in the summer. People rent it all year round. It's great in the fall. There's hiking. So it's a year-round rental, which is really, really great. The other one is, I would say, more of a investment. We have not stayed at it yet since we bought it, mostly because it's been booked. So it was booked all last summer. It's in a in Outer Bank, so it's like beach area, and it's booked all summer again this summer. So like that one's booked. So that one is much more of a true blue investment property versus our other one that is more of a investment slash second home. Yeah, and I think that because it would require a lot more work. You know, we don't want to do that right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of people who maybe want to do that. And I think that's a good place to generate some extra return. Mm-hmm. You know, for us, we knew coming into it for both what the management costs were going to be and how much it was going to cost to do all the linen service and all the cleanings and whatever. And you just build that in your, your spreadsheet and mm-hmm. um, you see if it works. You know, th- these are a really good example for me of something that also, for me personally, checks the box of adding a layer of protection liability wise as a, self-managing landlord, you have a lot of extra liability that you have to be careful of. You don't shovel the sidewalks if you're you know, supposed to be shoveling the sidewalks, if you don't take care of changing the filters, if you're supposed to be changing the filters. I mean, there's so many little tiny things that could just really, really trip you up liability-wise. And so having a management company has an extra layer in, in place that is doing all the checks and balances, that's going through and you know making sure the property is okay and making sure that the the tenants are carrying liability insurance for their stay. I mean, it's just these extra little layers that to me make sense to do when you also are getting slightly lower returns. And so that's why we really like them. They're hands-off, a little bit of extra liability protection. You know, I really like the fact that people have to pay before they come because mm-hmm. we've gone through some evictions. So I like that aspect that they have to actually pay before they stay there. It's kind of like a novel concept, but it's really, <laughs> really fun. Have you started to worry at all about the Airbnb rentals, given where we might be in the economy and the recession? 
when it comes to Airbnb rentals, returns are good when things are good. But if people aren't traveling, which is an issue because of the Black Swan event that we're dealing with right now with coronavirus, but that aside, just a general recession, people tend to be more strict with their money. They don't travel as much. They don't go on vacations as much. Have you started to consider that? And is that a concern for you guys? That was actually one of our major questions for the agents before we ever bought them was, okay, tell us about when there was a recession, what happened? Did people still come? And so they were able to really kind of paint a picture. And they basically said like the areas, yeah, it wasn't that bad. People generally still were coming. And they also gave us a lot of advice with location there in these resort areas and how your location could really play into that. You would ever need to, like, for instance, whenever we were talking to the agent for the ocean, like at the beach, the Outer Banks property, he was talking about like being oceanfront versus being off. And he was talking about, you know, in a situation like that, if you're oceanfront and you have to drop your price for some reason, people are going to stay where at an oceanfront property if it's the same price as a property that's back. So, where like location can really play into that. But that was one of the first questions that we asked. And I would say, again, we were talking about this at dinner where we bought, there are places where mostly people drive. I wouldn't say like a ton of people fly to go there. So it's mostly, you know, within a a state, two state, three state location, people are are commuting or driving to get there. And when you think about like we were talking, I'm like, okay, well, they can drive there. They don't have to fly. They don't have to ride on a train and they're going to stay at a house. So you're pretty much isolated. If you don't want to go out, you don't have to, or you can go out if you want. So I'm actually not too worried. But I would say if I had an Airbnb in Nashville right now, I'd be a little freaked out that you know people would be canceling. So yeah. and I don't think I mean we didn't plan on that. We no. were sitting three years ago going, you know, if the coronavirus really <laughs> takes off, you know, we should be good here. I think we just got a little bit lucky, but but we were concerned about the recession mm-hmm. side of it and everything Emily said was true. We did take into account the fact that we probably think we're at the top end of a, a cyclical market. And you just have to make the numbers work and you know really stress test your property. Like I, I remember testing all the numbers with a 20, 25% decline in vacancy and prices. Mm-hmm. And if it still works, okay, then you just got to pull the trigger. It's really interesting to hear that because Kirk, I know we've talked a bit before. I know you're a little bit conservative. So it's interesting for me to hear that you're okay with this. But I mean, it really does just come back to the numbers, right? I mean, Airbnb number returns can be so good that they can weather a 25, 30% downturn or just an increase in vacancy. If you keep the money, I think that's another thing too, is like, you know, we knew heading into it with both of these properties that, and actually it's been like this for all of our properties, to be honest, we keep all the money in the properties and like the funds and we just snowball it year after year after year. And so I don't know if we've ever gone back. I think we have gone back and like figured out how much we've actually put in, but the amount of money that we've actually put in real estate versus what we have in equity and Cash flow and you know profits now is probably like really disconnected in the sense that we put in a little bit of money and because we were able to let it stay in there and snowball into the next and the next and the next and the next property, then that gives us an added layer of protection so that if God forbid these properties were vacant for a year, we'd still be okay. Like we we'd be fine. You know, like we'd weather that storm. So I think it's uh you know good returns and then also being able to keep the cash. I actually did the exact same thing. I've never taken a dollar out of any of my rental properties. They always stay right in that property's bank account. From time to time, it, you'll enjoy this, Kirk, I think, is from time to time, once that balance kind of gets large enough, but it's not big enough to invest in real estate, but it's enough as a reserve, I'll do some very, very conservative options trading with the, with that uh, to just generate a little bit of extra cash flow for the rental while it sits there. I thought you would appreciate that. I do appreciate that. You know I love that. 
So we've talked a little bit about this so far throughout the show, but one of the things I like to do is talk to guests about the mistakes that they've made. That way, the audience and I can learn from the guest mistakes and not have to actually make them ourselves. So throughout your guys' journey, from the first deal that we talked about to where you are today, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you guys have made? All right, how much time do you have? Goodness. Um, I would say one would be making sure that you really calculate and really pay attention to the CapEx and the deferred maintenance on a property. I think in the beginning, we kind of alluded to this earlier, the first like handful of properties were condos and townhouses. They were new. They were nice. We didn't really have to think about CapEx then, and we had great returns. So even if there was an issue, they were 20, 25% return. So even if there was a CapEx issue, we had enough cushion there that it wouldn't kill us. But then we kind of took that mindset into when we started buying some of the older properties here, like in Pennsylvania, when we moved back. And those were some of the older ones with the wet, messed up flow, the one property that just has a ton of deferred maintenance. And we yeah. didn't really pay attention to that as much as we should have. So one of the reasons we sold off that house that we hate was because of the deferred maintenance. And the day after we bought it, we talked to the seller, like all these things broke, the hot water tank broke, the furnace. I felt so bad, but like that deferred maintenance, had we owned that for one more day would have just killed it. So you've really got to pay attention to that. I would say our biggest mistake so far is that we have been very lenient with our leases and agreements. Yeah. And, And I will be, I mean, like this is just as much me as it is Emily. You know, like we got yeah. into this and we're very much people pleaser type people. I'm a people pleaser. You You're not are. so much, but I'm I much am. harder than, than you are. <laughs> He's, I'm good cop. He's bad cop. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think it's like, it's so funny. And it, unfortunate, it's unfortunate that it is this situation. But if you give an inch, someone's going to take a mile. And, and it at really is at some yep. point. And so like now our rule is we follow the lease. That's it. Like there's no, there's no, there's no argument. There's no leniency. There's no nothing. Like if you are three days late, you get a letter in the mail. You have to follow the lease. And so we've gone above and beyond now to make sure that not only one, like we completely understand our leases because we've been to court and had to do evictions. So we've had to learn that process the hard way. But then two, that we write the leases the way that we want to operate these properties. And what we tell people now is, look, you have to earn your right and privilege to be flexible. Do not be late in the first year. If you make all your payments for the first year and then you're late by three days you know, in year two, okay, you've earned the right to be a little bit flexible. And we'll let that slide and you know, your kid was sick or you were on vacation and forgot to put it in the mail, whatever. But if that happens in like the first six months, you know, the, that's not a good way to start this relationship. So I think we've we've been taken advantage of in the sense that well, we wouldn't haven't been taken advantage of. That's the wrong mm-hmm. way to say it. We put ourselves in a position where we did not manage these properties appropriately. To get around that good cop bad cop situation, because I I found myself in the same same spot. I'm generally actually pretty tough when it comes to that type of stuff. I'm usually pretty business focused, but you know when people start throwing out sob stories or their reasons, it's tough. It, you know it really is and. So what I do is I never tell anyone that I actually own the properties. No one ever knows. I always work for the property management company or something along those lines. And that's that's just kind of how I've been able to separate yeah. the two because then it's, you know, I feel bad, but I can be strict with the lease and say, sorry, but that's what the owner says, right? And it never comes back to me. I tell people now, I'm like, look, this is an investment for my kid's future. And so if you don't make your payment, I can't make my payment. It's just really that simple. And 
And I'm pretty straight up with people in the sense that like, look, we're renting this out because we want to generate an income for this. We don't use the money. So we keep it in a bank. And if something breaks, we'll fix it. But you got to like take care of the property too. And I feel like that has gone a long way with a lot of people, but still we just have to follow the lease. It's tough. And, and you know why? Like this drives me crazy. But like one guy that we had to evict, I didn't know at the time, but he is a serial, serial eviction candidate. <laughs> and, and his it, mother too. And it she never showed up on system. anything. But let me tell you, he knew every law, every loophole, every little thing that he could possibly do. And so that was a massive learning experience for me because you know, like, I mean, he knew more about the lease than I did, you know, and the laws, which was fascinating. I've heard that. And I think they actually call them like professional tenants or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I've heard of stories like that. Knock on wood. I haven't come across any of that in my right. investing yet. I probably will as, as my investing career continues. But yeah, I've definitely heard of that. And it really just comes back to this whole idea of running a leg of business because that's yeah. essentially what it is. And if you don't, and it can even go further is sometimes if you give someone leniency, you could be technically breaking the law. Somebody yeah. could come back at you and claim discrimination or you know, all these other different things that you're just trying to do somebody, something nice for someone. And then it turns into this whole issue that you hadn't even thought of. You just really got to run it like a business. And I think that That's is a, a mistake that a lot of people that are just getting started will make is that they want to be lenient and they want to be helpful and not realize that how important it is to follow the lease. So I think that's really good advice for people that are just starting off and buying that first property. Yeah, that's great. That's a good point about the liability on that side too, because mm -hmm. like now, like every call that I make, it's like the first call is to my lawyer. Okay, here's the issue. Like, how do I do this? You know, just so I'm, you know, following the right laws and, you know, doing it the right way. And because um, you never know. For better or for worse, it's just, it's just a common thing that's taking place in our world these days. So it's, it, is a, it is a component that I think people do need to take into consideration. 100%. Emily, when you were talking about the mistake that you guys have made, you mentioned CapEx and deferred maintenance. For those that are new to real estate that might not be super familiar with those two terms, can you tell us what exactly CapEx is and also what deferred maintenance is? They kind of a little bit go hand in hand a lot of times. CapEx is really those big ticket items that aren't, it's not paint, it's not carpet, it's your electrical, it's a roof, it's HVAC. So it's those big ticket items that maybe need to be replaced every 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But when they do, it's a lot of money. So you know, like we mentioned with the sewer system, that almost ate all of our profit for a whole year because we had to do that. So those CapEx things, you can plan ahead for, which is really cool. So if you're just getting started and you're like, okay, Emily, I'm going to pay attention to this. There are a lot of really great resources out there because when you get a home inspection, you're going to know how old the furnace is and you're going to know how you know, when the roof was last replaced. And so you're going to say, okay, you know, I have seven years until the roof is going to need replaced. Okay. So if it costs this much X number of dollars to replace a roof from now over the next seven years, every month I should be putting this amount of money in a, in a fund to be able to pay for that. That way, when the time comes to do that, you have the money to do it and it's not eating into all of your profit. So it's those big ticket items that a lot of times you can plan ahead for if you have the knowledge to do so. And there are a lot of great resources out there, charts and things that can kind of give you an idea of like averages of how much something is in the lifespan so that when you want to sit down and figure out, okay, like I need to save for the HVAC or for the hot water tank in the roof, you know, you can sit down and make a calculation so that you can kind of have an accurate number that you can be saving every month. Yeah. And on the deferred maintenance side, I mean, that's just stuff that you can go through and see, you know, we need a new railing or we need a, the deck is falling off. And I think that, you know, a lot of times, 
we would go through a property and be like, yeah, the hot water tank looks like it's going to blow, but I think it'll go 10 more years. You know, And like, <laughs> nope, it probably needs to be replaced. Right. And so I think we did a bad job of not, you know, we got hit with those bills very quickly. Like, you know, the hot water tank blew and we were really tech. No way. The hot water tank. Yeah. Blew. But, you know, looking back yeah. on it, that was a something that already should have been replaced that we just right. have to factor. It in. is. It's like maintenance stuff that potentially the owner who had it before didn't take care of. And then that stuff just ultimately falls on you, unfortunately. And it will. And it will, unless yep. you can negotiate some of that into the home inspection, yep. which is worth a try. <laughs> I have to say, I, I've taken some chances on some old appliances. Knock on wood, I've actually been, I've had pretty good luck when I bought my primary residence. The boiler is original and the property was built in the 80s. So it's it's older and it's definitely on its way out. But I said to myself, I gave myself the false sense of hope that I was like, oh, they don't build things like they used to anymore. This thing is going to last forever. <laughs> and knock on wood, it's been a few don't years. Yeah. And it's still going, knock on wood. And don't send us an email tomorrow that says it broke. <laughs> I know. I know. Now that we talk about it, it might. I know. <laughs> so how can somebody prepare for these types of things going into a deal? Should they... Because I think a lot of times people squeeze into a deal by the skin of their teeth with the down payment and closing costs. They they see that that total number is going to say ten thousand, and they go in with ten thousand and one dollar. They don't keep anything for reserves, things like that, just so they can get into a deal. Should they be setting aside some money above and beyond those two items to ensure that they have some reserves if those things take place? And of course, if it, if everything inside the house is brand new, then maybe it's not as big of a deal. But if there's if it's an older property with older insides, if you will, appliances, things like that, should they be setting aside that reserve when they first get into the property? Yeah, yeah like sure. 100%. <laughs> and then you were asking, like, how do they do it? And it's just simple math. Like you just take the, you know, the cost or double estimate, you know, if you think it's $500 and you're just guessing, like triple it, you know, like mm-hmm. put that money aside and just, you know, subtract that out of the money that you have to spend so that you have a reserve. And I would argue actually that it's not necessarily that things won't break that are new. You know, we bought one of the vacation rentals we bought, the stove broke the first day. And we called the lady the first day after closing. And I was like, the stove doesn't work. And I don't even remember them. I don't think they actually really checked on the inspection report. And she was like, yeah, I've never used it. It's just like sat there for like five months. And so it it like never worked, right? And it's like a multi hundred dollar stove, right? And we have to go call somebody to fix it like the first day. So it's not that things won't break, even if they're brand new, you should absolutely have a reserve, not only for just the things that might break, but for vacancies and unforeseen costs and like delays and so many. Yeah. And if you're using financing, a lot of times the banks are going to require that anyways. So if you're going to go with conventional financing, in most cases to qualify, they're going to want to see that you have a certain amount set aside to be able to cover anything if something were to happen. You know what? We actually have a cool story. So we had a property, not a cool story. It was not cool at the time, but (laughs) we had a property that had a water pipe break and the water pipe broke flooded the entire thing. Remember down in Virginia, Richfield? Everything broke, right? And we, so our girl had to move out and the insurance covered everything except the insurance payment didn't come for six months. So we had to float the property and start Mm -hmm. all the repairs and whatever for six months. And so like, that is something where like, yes, you have insurance and yes, it will cover the cost. And it paid us back all the money that we had put into it, but we had to float it at first. And I don't think people think about that. No, that's a really good point. I definitely don't think people think about that because insurance is great, even if it does cover everything that it's supposed to and then some. That's great. But I mean, these companies, just the truth is they're slow. slow. Yeah, they're slow at paying. I mean, they're a corporation, they're going to do their due diligence and then you'll eventually get your payment, but it takes time. 
Have you guys ever done anything with home warranties to kind of combat these types of things? Yes. When we first got started, actually, we, we bought them. Yeah, we have good and bad stories. Actually, you know, one of our, I think it was the second property we yeah. ever bought shortly after we bought it, the HVAC system went. And so that's huge. I mean, that's what 6,000, I think it was like $6,500 was the total. And we had a home warranty and the home warranty covered everything. But I think we had to pay $500 for the cement slab that it sat on. Right. And this was at a townhouse. And so awesome story, right? Everything was great, super easy to work with. And then we tried another company with um, properties we had in Pennsylvania, and it was a nightmare. We couldn't ever get anybody out there. There was always an issue with them covering things. So we've had like really great success with some and not so great success with the others. Yeah. I I think the issue that we have with the home warranties and the reason that we do not use them right now is the delay between the time that something breaks and the time that they can get an approved person out there and then that that approved person can actually start work you know like yeah, the process the, the whole process could take you know a week or two weeks but if it's the middle of winter and the HVAC is gone or the, in the heating the furnace, the furnace yeah. is gone like you're not going to let your tenant sit there for two weeks right yeah. and so you can't wait around for that and once you start doing it and you find somebody who's not approved or not on the approved list didn't approve the repairs then it's all for nothing. And so I, I think it's, yeah. I do not it's think it's worth it. I don't, good and bad, but it is, it's a process. Nothing happens fast because it's all about approvals and then approvals for approvals. And so just be aware <laughs> of that. If you're going to do it, then just be aware that it probably will not be fixed quickly. So do you think that it's the differences between the companies that are providing the home warranty themselves, or do you think it could be a component of, and maybe the city you guys are investing in is big, so maybe this isn't a reality, but do you think it's the size of the city? Because if you're, yes. I mean, if you're getting a home warranty in a small town, right, it's probably hard to find <laughs> yeah, these types of people exactly. that are approved to do. And this. that's our issue now that, that because we live issue. in our small in a small town. Where we were in Virginia, it was much more suburban, like suburban area, and so and but it could be the company too. They just generally were better to work with than the company that we used where we live now. So I think it's a little bit about honestly. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I. I've used only one company. I've done it a couple times with a couple different properties, but it was always in the same city. It's a it's a decent sized city, a little over 120,000 people, so it's not super small by any means. So there's a lot of people in there, contractors, you know, different types of professionals that can go in and do that work. So I I've actually had really good experience with mine, but I think I could see if you go to a 10, 15, 20,000 population type city that it could be tough to find, you know, That's approved us. workers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we as are. you were telling that story, that was kind of exactly what I I was thinking. Uh, yep. A small town in Pennsylvania, right? Yep. yep. So with all these different mistakes that we've talked about, how'd you guys make sure you didn't get crushed by them? Not just monetarily, I think we've covered that, but psychologically, emotionally, how did you continue on after them and not quit? I have days where I hate real estate. <laughs> I'll be totally honest. I mean, like it's not, you know, like I don't think anybody goes through they are totally lying if they tell you that at some point they they don't hate real estate. I mean, like there are days where I'm like, you just got to be kidding me. I mean, it's like, it's just like, it feels like it's stacking like layer on top of layer on top of layer. And those are far and few between. And Emily's way better at managing that than I am. Like, I definitely have those, you know, I go. He's one, a swinger. Yeah, I'm one way. <laughs> in, in this way, like, I love it. I hate it. I want to sell everything. I want to buy 100 properties. I want right, to sell. Right, I want right, to buy. Right. I think that we just, you know, you have to have, I think, a sounding board of some kind. And so if you're doing this by yourself, look for a partner. If you're, if you can't find a partner, have somebody you trust, a friend that can be just, you know, a confidant that you can, you know, say, look, I'm having a really bad day. Like, you know, help me out, like talk me off the ledge here. And, you know, for me, that's Emily, which is great. 
because she's my wife and you know partner in this. But if you don't have that, I think it becomes very easy to get into a downward spiral by yourself. And I think that that can be dangerous. I, I'm actually in the same boat as you, Kirk. And I wonder if we part of it is because we invest in the stock market. And the reason I say that is because real estate is great. There's all kinds of benefits that you can get from it. You know, from a tax perspective, appreciation. You know, really the four pillars of real estate that you mm-hmm. can't necessarily get in the stock market. There are times where I'm making very conservative options trades that make equal cash flow to what I'm making from my rental properties. And I'm just sitting at my computer. It's just me. I don't have to deal with tenants or toilets. And I'm like, man, is this real estate stuff even really worth it? Should I just, just stick to the stock market? And, and so I wonder if it's us being involved in that type of stuff that kind of adds in that doubt or just you know, roller coaster of emotions that we go on. I think it totally is. I mean, for me, I'm 100% like you. I, and Emily knows this because I say it all the time. I'm like, you know, we made more money on this trade than we made like all year on that stupid property, you know, and like all that crap that we dealt with with the sewer line and blah, blah, blah. I guess when I calm down and I think logically and clearly, what I realize is that the ability to have real estate as a component or to have options or to have anything else as a component of your portfolio helps stabilize everything. So, yeah, it's going to be really frustrating sometimes. And yeah, the times that you have to go to, you know, the eviction hearing, you know, twice because the guy didn't show up and you had to reschedule and blah, blah, blah. Like that's super frustrating. But I think ultimately it's worth it as a component in your mm-hmm. portfolio. Yeah. And Murphy's law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. 100%. At the same time. At the same time. <laughs> when it rains, it pours. We'll have nothing for months. And then it's like everything in like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That is that's it's what gets crazy. Yeah, that's what gets me. I guess the other thing about real estate too is even though we're we're stock guys or stock market investors, is that you think about 15, 20 years, 30 years down the line when those properties are paid off and you didn't really put that much money into it and it was really paid for by someone else and you have all of that equity, even if you don't hold it forever, you just sell it with all the equity. That's the component that you don't necessarily get yeah. you know, from options, which is, is a big component of real estate. I think that's always the hardest part about, about real estate is, and even just like options trading or any investing in general is the ability to be patient because we are all so impatient and myself included. And you know, patience is, is something that you have to practice. And I think real estate is a great way to have forced patience with your investments. Yeah, I think that's a huge component of it as well. I mean, with the stock market crashing right now, everybody just logs onto their computer. They could sell everything they have in a few minutes. Whereas with real estate, that's just not possible. And I think that actually works to the benefit of investors. I think it does. Yeah. So we talked about how you don't need to know everything when you're just starting out. Oftentimes, just taking action is even more important than knowing everything. But thinking back to when you were just getting started, what specific important things do you wish you knew then that you know now? I would say that I wish I was more well-versed on the taxes and the insurance and the utility costs, all the ancillary stuff besides the mortgage. Yeah. I think that you can get estimates and you can you know, try to verify estimates as much as possible, but really understanding how much they're going to change or not, or how much they fluctuate during different seasons or not, I think is something that I really wish I understood. Same thing with uh, CapEx. Like Emily said, I wish I would have spent more time going through properties with the home inspector. And I used to do that Mm -hmm. after the the first couple of properties. I was like, I don't understand this. I'm going to go shadow this guy for three hours and watch him and ask a million questions. And I learned a lot in that experience. So I wish I would have done that earlier. I think another thing was tenant screening and the management part of it. We didn't, like, that was a part we really didn't know anything about. 
we were good with Kirk on the numbers and the management side was, you know, clueless. And there are so many great softwares that are out there now. I mean, there's so many softwares online for property management and tracking and tenant screening and background checks and all of that stuff that goes into it that we just really didn't know in the beginning. And so we were just really excited to have somebody that wanted our property. (laughs) And so we just threw them in there in the first And luckily we lucked out in the beginning. We had good tenants. I mean, our evictions and things didn't come until like more recent past. And in fact, both were with student rentals, but that's another thing. So like we lucked out with good tenants, but I just we could have more picky. Yeah, we could have done a maybe a better job screening them and not necessarily relied on luck so much in the beginning. So everything we've learned throughout this episode has been great and I think it's been very helpful. But learning all of this information is only one piece of the equation. The other big piece of the equation, and arguably even more important, is actually taking action on everything that we've talked about. So for a new investor listening to the show today, what is the first action step you'd recommend they take after listening to this episode? I think the first thing that anybody like newbie investors can do is just stop and take a self-assessment. Honestly, before you get out there and you make an appointment with a real estate agent, because they're going to ask you a bunch of questions. And if you don't have the answers to those questions, you're not going to get anywhere. So you need to do a self-assessment of just your generally your finances, like where your money is, where it's going, where it's coming in. Do you have the ability to call like money to pay a down payment? Are you going to need to partner with somebody to be able to get to a down payment, right? You need to kind of figure some of those things out financially before you kind of ever start down that road. I mean, I think you have to do a little bit of a self self assessment as to like your why. Like, why do you want to invest in it? Is it a lifestyle thing? Is it a financial thing? Is it saving for retirement or saving for kids' college tuitions? Because it will get rocky. It will get tough no matter what. And so, I think having a why that's really powerful and something you can fall back on on those days, like, or you know, (laughs) wants to sell everything and be done with it. And we go back to our why. And that is honestly what just kind of keeps you going. And I think that's really with, with anything in life. But I think it's really important in the beginning is that you figure out, can you do this financially? What's going to push you? Why are you going to get in it? What does it look like for you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We talked about this at dinner beforehand. Like, yeah. That's what we would do to start Yeah, all the time. And I think, yeah. And it's a lifestyle thing. You got to think about like, is this, am I doing it to impact my lifestyle? And then I think once you figure some of those things out, then you can start to learn your area and then you can you know, get a real estate agent and start going down that road with them. And they're going to be... You have a lot of clarity. Yeah, you have clarity because they're, you're going to get asked questions. Lenders are going to ask you questions. Agents are going to ask you questions. And if you don't know those things before going in, you're going to sit there like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, right? I can't even answer these questions. How am I going to do this? So you've got to take some time to kind of self-assess where you are, what you want, to, want it to look like to kind of get direction. Emily, Kirk, thanks so much for sharing your story and all the knowledge that you've gained over the years from going from real estate rookies to real estate pros. For those interested in learning more about you and connecting with you guys, where's the best place for them to go? You're a new investor and you're looking to get started. We have a podcast as well, the Rental Rookie Podcast. We have a Facebook group, a private community of investors. You can check us out at rentalrookie.com. We just have tons of resources and it's really just about sharing kind of, you know, what you're doing and sharing and helping and educating and empowering people to get out there and do it themselves. Yeah. We have a really fun time and we like to choose new words that Emily's not ever heard before. Oh, on the podcast. podcast. He always does that. Yes. Like soup to nuts or stuff like that. Honestly, we just have a good time just, you know, teaching and not even teaching, just sharing what we learn and Mm -hmm. trying to help some people out because I wish things like this, like your podcast 
like other podcasts that are out there, communities. And I, I wish yeah, that this was they around just weren't really when there. we were doing this to start. And, and if, if they weren't. And if they were, we just didn't even have enough yeah, knowledge to go find them. Much. But I don't think there were that many. Yeah. So. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much. I'll be sure to put links to all of those different things in the show notes. I'll also put other links to topics that we talked about so you guys could go read up more on that. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks. We had a great time. All right, guys. So that wraps up part two of this two-part series with Kirk and Emily Duplessis. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I always have fun when I get a chance to talk to these two And I hope you all learned a lot from the conversation. I'll see you all again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.